Well, praise the Lord. I'll tell you, it's uh, humbling to be up here following those uh, three blessed brothers of mine. I'll tell you, I uh, am thankful to call them all friends, co-laborers in ministry, and I can tell you that we all are of a kindred spirit, especially um, Dave Jordan. I saw Dave here earlier. He's around here. Dave, Dave, George, Paul, and myself we sit in this room and we see the four, essentially four churches represented here, and it brings great joy to our heart to see the body of Christ, though in different locations, yet unified around one Lord, one message, right? One gospel, one baptism, and what a blessing that is. And it's a privilege to come together, and though we may not know everyone as intimately as we would like, as George said, we're all family. We just got to get past that and embrace it and serve one another and it has been a blessing to be a part of this and to know you men and to serve you. I find it a um, um, very humbling to follow uh, Dr. Shirley and, uh, and uh, it's a blessing. I will tell you that my plan from the beginning was to deal with the text that we were giving and so uh, <laughs> that was my plan from the beginning because that's what Steve asked so I'm not... <laughs> I'm not bold enough to break away from the, uh, from the direction given to us, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't been a senior pastor as long as these other guys. They've got a little bit more boldness in that area, so uh, I was planning on preaching from it. And then as these guys preached, I've had to edit my sermon three different times. And so I've been going through going, all right, that's been dealt with, that's been dealt with. And then uh, when Paul got up and he told me, he said, yeah, I think I'm going to deal a little bit of the text. I said, all right, that'll be good. And then he pretty much obliterated my second point. I said, all right, I, I got I to go back and add this in. So uh, it's been fun. It's been fun for me as, as a fellow uh, shepherd with these brothers to be encouraged that we all think alike, that we are all going to the text the same way with the same goal and we all extrapolate from the text, right? We do exegesis, not eisegesis. We pull the truth out, not put our ideas in. And because we do that, it's always encouraging to me to see that we pretty much pull out the same things. We might say them in a different way, but we're, we're, we're on the same lane. And that's, that's an encouragement to my heart, and that should be to yours as well, and that's a blessing. And so, praise the Lord. Let me open in a word of prayer and ask the Lord if He will bless us in this final session. Lord God Almighty, we come before you humbly and just, uh, just acknowledging, Lord, our, un, our unworthiness to handle your word. We thank you for the preciousness of Christ as we have just sang. Lord, it is our desire to give all glory to Christ. It is our desire to have Christ as all of our life. But Lord, we know that the flesh is strong in us. And though we have been freed from the shackles of sin and the dominion of Satan, Lord, our hearts are so prone to wander. We so easily dive back into the old way with muscle memory. And so, Lord, we pray throughout this message that stands before us and the drive home as we go back to the work week and our families and our ministries, Lord, that these messages which have been so faithfully delivered that the Spirit of God would use the truth and not only plant the seed in our hearts, but change our lives so that we 
would be faithful ministers of the gospel wherever you have us planted, that we would be faithful reflectors of your glory, that we would be faithful men of God. Help us in this time before us now, we pray. For the glory of your name we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you're not there already, I would encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians 16, 16, 13. Let me read the the verse and uh, pick a little bit apart that uh, Paul left as far as context goes. I think it'll be helpful to look at this. I will tell you, having done a number of retreats like this and having had the privilege to be the last speaker, that uh, one of my main jobs is to keep you awake and to uh, get to the end really quickly and to summarize, kind of pull it all together. I know that, and uh, so you bear with me and as I seek to achieve that as we uh, really deal with this wonderful text, especially as it helps us understand and know what it means to be men of God. Hear the word of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. I'll read verse 14 as well. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You need to ask yourself, why does Paul put this kind of staccato series of imperatives here at the end of this rather long and somewhat obnoxious letter to this very whimsical church? You have to understand, he has purpose here. He's not just firing away, you know, haphazardly. Well, I'm finishing out the letter, and here are a few more commands to give to you. That's not at all what he's doing. There's purpose in these specific commands, and even giving them at the end. I will tell you that the reason why these five commands are here, if you take even verse 14 as a command as I would, you, you see that these are essentially the last five commands of the whole letter. And so these are the final imperatives that Paul is giving to this church that desperately needed it. And in many ways, as I'll show you here in a second, what Paul is doing is he's summarizing or encapsulating all the truth that he's given to them through a series of commands. And so in many ways, you can grapple with and even grasp the the letter of 1 Corinthians through articulating and understanding these specific commands. When you see, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Why would he give these? Well, let me encourage you with this. This church was a mess. It was beyond a mess. This church had issues beyond anything that, honestly, we even can relate to. I mean, you got people, open immorality, incestuous immorality in some form or fashion. I'm from West Virginia, so I can speak about that, right? (laughs) Very, very directly. Trust me, I, I can. But you got that going on in the church openly, right? It's, it's bizarre. So you read through 1 Corinthians. By the time you get to chapter 3, as Paul said, Paul calls them out on the carpet. You're a bunch of believing babies. You're a bunch of spiritual kids that think you're spiritual kings. You're the ones who think you're at the top when really you're at the bottom. You're babies. Your believers still on the bottle. He just lays it out. Why? Well, one, chapter three, you got all kinds of division in the church. You're picking 
your idols and your, and your lords and your superstar preachers and you're holding them up rather than focusing on Christ. You've got massive division in the church when you should be unified around the gospel. Chapter 4, your, your church is filled with arrogant speech, filthy language and speech instead of love for one another permeates your congregation. Chapter 5, as I said, open immorality and debauchery is happening within the body. Chapter 6, as if that's not enough, you're openly in, in public taking one another to court. Lawsuits over frivolous things. Chapter 7, your marriages are a mess. Instead of being a reflection of the gospel and the glory of God, you're a, a, a reflection of the culture of Corinth. And if that's not bad enough, by the time you get to chapter 8 and into chapter 7, he just calls it what it is. You've got open idolatry in your church. Your Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is a feast of idolatry. Hence the warning. Do not take it in an unworthy manner. And then as Paul even pointed out in, in one of his side notes, by the time you get to chapter 12, 13, and 14, this is open chaos in the church. A congregation that has absolutely no self-control. Spiritual gifts running rampant. Of course, 13, we read that passage at weddings, and really it's a passage that's a direct confrontation to selfishness. So by the time you get to chapter 16, with that understanding of the context, you start to at least understand a little bit of the tone. Because here's what you have to ask as you see this church in that setting. How did they get there? How does what Paul is very clear in chapter 1, these are saints, these are brothers and sisters in the Lord, these are, these are genuine believers according to his own articulation in chapter 1. How do you get there? How do you, how do you defame the, the, the name of Christ in such an open way? I'm glad you asked. Paul lays it out here in chapter 16, verse 13. Number one, you have ceased to be watchful. You're no longer alert. That's what that word means. Literally means to pay attention. Be alert to the setting and, and, the, and your surroundings. Watch what's going on. The church at Corinth failed to stay awake. They failed to stay alert. Alert to what? Alert to their own selfishness. Alert to the sin that lurks within their own heart. Alert to the evil one that was roaring around like the, like the lion seeking whom he may devour. They weren't alert. They weren't watchful. My dad, my dad was in Vietnam and uh, multiple times and pretty heavy fighting. And so I was raised in a military family. My brother was in the military and everybody expected me to go to the military. And when I didn't go to the military, tons of people asked me why. And I said, because I've been raised in the military my whole life. I've been, I had my first gun when I was seven years old, again, from West Virginia. Don't hold that against me. But that's how we ate. But, I mean, uh, that was... That was, that was what we did. And so I was raised that way, hard in many ways, uh, but good, good. And I remember my dad teaching me early on as, he, as a young boy this phrase, and I've never forgotten it, and it, and it really comes out of this text. He's, I, re I remember we were on a job. I started working with him when I was eight years old, and we were on a job, and, and we were working with a bunch of electricity, and he, I was around it. 
and he was, you know, of course, nervous. I might mess with something I shouldn't and get electrocuted. And he taught me this, and then he, as he always would, he'd tell me a story from Vietnam. And he taught me this, and he said, son, never forget, alert, alive. You remain alert, you'll stay alive. And then he told me this story about when he first got to Vietnam, and, and they, for the latrines, they would cut a 55-gallon drum in half, and they would bury it in the ground and put a toilet seat on it, and that's where you would go. And he said, it's the worst thing in the world because you're just out there in the middle of this field. You're just a sitting duck. And he hadn't been there three weeks, and he's, crawling, and he's headed out to the latrine, and all he sees is the tracers coming. And he sees him, a sniper up, up in the woods, and they're just coming at him. And, and he thought he was dead. He'd gotten saved right before he went there. It's the only reason he didn't die multiple times, no doubt. The Lord was watching over him. And, and he remembered. He learned that lesson that day. He was not alert to his settings. He, sh- he should have he dug a hole and just went to the bathroom there by, by his foxhole and not go out there. And uh, he taught me that lesson. The believers in Corinth did not know that lesson. They did not follow that lesson. They were not alert to what? The evil one, but more importantly, to the sin that lurks within us. Brothers, your, your heart is desperately wicked, even as a redeemer. I think it was, uh, I think it was John Owen, and I may get one of the, my Puritans crossed. I do often, because I read them a lot, but I think it was John Owen that said, the seed of every sin that man can ever commit lives in the heart of every man. You know what? When that's your perspective... You remain alert. But your alert isn't always looking out, it's looking in, being careful for that man right here. I remember in seminary, one time I had to get up and present and do something, and Jordan and I were in seminary, and Gabe Powell was the first guy I met when I moved to California. It's a blessing to have all these connections, you know. And I remember when I presented, I got up and and I asked the guys, I said, do you know what the biggest issue you will face in ministry? And we went through all the, you know, false teaching and pornography and all these issues that, that just are part of ministry in different churches and we have to deal with. And it's none of those things. The biggest issue in life is not what's outside, it's what's inside. You are your biggest problem. You are the biggest enemy that you have to deal with. See, until you get that perspective and live with that perspective, then much of what you have heard today will fall on deaf ears. It will be the the repetitive cycle of play, rewind, repeat, and nothing changes. You go through another conference and you go out the doors and it just, the cycle of sin, the cycle of lethargy, the cycle of laziness just continues. You have to understand that. So that's why these commands are here. They were not watchful. They did not stand firm in the faith. They were not rooted and grounded in the truth. That word stand firm literally literally means to, to plant your feet and dig yourself into the truth, right? Not into the ground, so to speak, but that's the picture. Much like when I played on the football team, and this will show you how sad it is in West Virginia, I played on the line. There you go, yeah. I was a guard. I was a guard. I got clobbered. Linebackers would line up and they'd see me, this guard, and they'd be like, it's, it's heaven. It's heaven. 
Every time we, you know, if you know anything about football, you know the guard, he has to be quick because he has to beat the running back out there. And every time we would get to play for a run, and it was always, I was on the strong side, so it would always be that side tended. And it would be like, I'm getting killed again. I'm getting killed again. Because that's, that's all it is. That's all guards do. You're the guy that takes out the linebacker, or in my case, gets taken out by the linebacker, right? And so, but I remember learning those positions and how to stand and planning your feet to, so that you're, you're immovable. That's what it means. That word means to be immovable in the truth, that you're not pulled away. This church was not immovable in the truth at all. They were totally movable. They totally rejected the word of God. They totally looked away from it. Hence the reason why Paul now at the end says, listen, stay alert to the sin that's within you. Stay alert to the evil one that's around you. Stand firm in the faith. And then act like men, as Paul um, explained to us, this idea of maturity. The word, the word means to be courageous. And that is exactly what they were not. They were not acting like men, as Paul said so clearly. They were acting like babies, as, as the Apostle Paul says so thoroughly. And now we end up in this last phrase, last word in the Greek text that I've been given. Be strong. Be strong. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do here to encourage you and hopefully help you and, and finish out this text and this retreat. I really I want you to go away with three words. Three words to kind of kind of pull everything that we've heard, everything that we've seen in this text and, and about this series, and hopefully it'll help you compartmentalize these sermons and these truths in some file folders in your mind that you can pull out and repeat. I would encourage all of you by point of application what you should do when you go home, all of us who have wives, sometime before the night or, or before you go to work tomorrow, you should teach these sermons to your wife, every one of them. You should go home and you should repeat this. I tell my, my, the guys at my church, we have, a, we have a very active men's ministry by way of what we're doing here. We do this all the time, as, as I know all, all of you guys do in churches. And I tell them almost after every session, your job now is go teach your wife and your kids. You haven't learned this and you haven't applied it until you teach your wife and your kids. You should do that with every lesson. Why? One is because you're commanded to shepherd your wife. And two, because that's, that's the beginning of learning. Once you start teaching it, you start embracing it. It starts becoming part of who you are. And you should do that. That's just as a way of application just from all that we've heard. Here's three words so we can move through this quickly and bring some sort of uh, clarity for the whole of what we've seen and heard and what we'll see here in this final command to be strong. Three words summarizing. One, urgency. Urgency. We'll flesh that out in a minute. These, these all flow out of this text here. I'll show you. Urgency. Number two, dependency. And number three, tenacity. Urgency, dependency, tenacity. We've heard all this already in all of these sermons, and you're going to see it by way of clarity out of this command to be strong here in a minute. Be strong. One word, uh, much like Paul's word that went before. It's interesting. Paul's word... Um, being the only time that it's used in the Greek New Testament is in that verse. This word is only used about three or four times, though there's other Greek words that mean basically the same thing of being strong or being strengthened. So unlike Paul, I have a little bit more to work with here. However, what's interesting about these words is they are often used together, especially in the Septuagint. 
You know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, right? And so this command, and you'll resonate with it if you haven't caught it already, to what? Be strong and courageous. That's what the word means, right? To be strong and courageous. That gets repeated throughout the Old Testament. And guess what the, trans, the, the guys who were translating the Hebrew into the Greek, guess what two words they would often use for that? These words right here, they often go together. These commands often go together. This idea of to be strong, to act like a man, and to be strong. Now, first is urgency. Urgency, where does that flow out of the text? Well, it flows right out of what we've seen already. All of these are commands. Every single one of them are Every single one of these are imperatives. They are not optional. They are obligations. Every one of us are commanded to follow these. So you, you, right away, if you're reading the text properly, there should be a sense of urgency that starts to well up within your heart. Anytime there's a command, we see that this is serious. There's a sobriety and a solemnity here. Not only from the context that I just that I just explained to you because they weren't follow, following these commands, therefore they ended up in such a, a desperate place. But now Paul is saying, okay, now continue in these. Do these as you move forward. There's an urgency that comes from the fact that this is a command. However, this, this uh, command to be strengthened is used over in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul tells Timothy in the sense of, of the urgency of the final letter that Paul writes, and he tells him the same thing. Timothy, be strengthened in the Lord in this task that I've set before you. There's an urgency to it. At the end of Ephesians 6.10, when we get to that great passage on spiritual warfare, right, that we all read and, 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 and have all kinds of interesting thoughts going on about the battle between the flesh and the spirit and what goes on there. How does Paul start that? Now I urge you, brothers, to be strong in the Lord. Starts it out with this command, again, to be strong. little different word, but same idea. This whole idea to be strong. Of course, as I've already said, it gets repeated throughout the Old Testament many times. To be strong. Israel was commanded to be strong. Joshua was commanded to be strong. David commands all Israel to be strong. Psalm 31, 24, Joshua 1, 6, Deuteronomy 31, 4, and it just keeps going. So as you start to grapple with this, you start to see there's, a, there's an urgency here. I'm commanded to be strong. Not only that, as you study the prayers of Paul and you look over to Colossians 1, verses 10 and 11, guess what Paul prays? He prays that the church in Colossae, he prays that they would come to a clear and a right understanding of the supremacy of Christ, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that, what was the purpose of praying that? So that they would be strengthened with all power so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This command is part of the prayers of Paul. You see this exact same word used in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, used over in another prayer of Paul's in Ephesians 3, in Ephesians 3, where he literally prays again that the church in Ephesus, that the believers there would be strengthened in the grace of Christ. So as you start to realize that these are imperatives, that brings a sense of urgency, and you start to realize that Paul shaped many of his prayers with this whole idea as he's beseeching God to strengthen the believers, that gets my attention. 
But not only that, as you start, and we've heard this, but it bears repeating, man, as you start to consider what we're called to as believers, when you start to consider the calling upon our lives to be godly men, when you start to wrestle with what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ, like George said, and to abandon all, and to die to self, and self-denial. Man, let me tell you, what is one thing we need? We need strength. We need to be strong in that. I don't know about you, but I read the calling of what it means just to be a follower, let alone a, a leader in Christ's church, and I'm, and I'm overwhelmed. I start getting weak really fast because I can't do this. I need strength. And I start looking at what it means to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and I'm the first one to stand up and say, man, I, I'm out. I can't do that. I can't even fully comprehend what that is. I can describe it. I can dis- explain it. I can dis- how it's displayed in Scripture. But I can't even plumb the depths of that because His love is that vast and that grand. And the sacrifice He made, I'm not called to anything like that. And yet He does it willingly and joyfully. And I've got to display that in my marriage. Man, I need strength. I need help. No, you start seeing the calling for all of us to kill sin. Mortify the flesh. I love the word. Kill. That's what it means in the Greek. Colossians 3, 5. Kill sin. I don't think we say that enough. Instead of killing sin, we coddle sin. We have pet sins. God forbid. You know what that is? It's like playing with a cobra. And we do it all the time. And the Bible is clear. You're going to kill sin. Listen, if I'm killing anything, especially sin, I need strength. I need to be strong. Ephesians, or 1 Peter 5, 6-11 is that passage, right? Again, using the same phraseology from 1 Corinthians 16 here, start, Peter starts out and says what? Be alert. Be watchful. Why? Because the devil, the evil one, roaring around, seeking whom he may devour. I realize that. I need to be strong. You know, I'm, I am, as a pastor in ministry for many years, I've seen this over and over again. Men in my life, men who have mentored me, I've had the privilege of serving in multiple places under good and godly men. One of the reasons that I even, while candidating at Belcroft, and my wife and I praying about this, decided to accept the call from this church. You want to know one of the main reasons? Was the proximity to Hope Bible Church so that I could sit under Tom Leake's leadership, so that I could learn from him, so that I could be around him so that he could help me grow and be a faithful shepherd. And one thing I've learned, listen, one thing I've learned about watching these guys, and, I, and George and Paul and Dave will tell you, I tell that to them. I'm so thankful for them. I'm following behind them. And I'm thankful for them and the example they are to me. And it's a blessing to serve with them. And one thing I watch with all of these guys and Pastor MacArthur and all these men that I, that I rightfully hold up as examples as they follow Christ, you know what? These faithful men are strong men. And guess what? Strong men do not stroll. They do not stroll through life. They go through life staying faithful to the Lord, alert. They're striving. They're watching. There's no strolling haphazardly. They put the flak jacket on every day when they go out the door. Why? Because they know the enemy's lurking. They know the battleground is hot. You go into a hot battleground every time, not when you go out the door, every time your eyes go like this in bed. 
and you become coherent, you, you should see tracers going across your eyelids. That's the way it is. But most of us, we stroll. It'll be all right. It's all good. God is sovereign. You don't see that with Paul. You don't see that with these godly men. Strong men, and they're alert. They live life, here's, here's our word, they live life under an urgency. That's what Jordan was saying to us the first night, right? He even used the phrase as I was going through and had these words kind of picked out, and, I, and I'm listening for them, and he used it twice in his sermon. And he talked about it. One reason why we lack evangelistic passion is because we lack gospel urgency. Strong men are marked by urgency. Who was the strongest man of all? Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, he was a man of urgency. It says he set his face like a flint for Jerusalem. And, and when it looked like someone might try to thwart the plan, he says, no, my time is not yet. I know where I'm going, and it's not ready, but no one's going to stop me. No one's going to come before me, and it's not going to come too late. I'm setting my face like a flint. That's the mark of a strong man. It's marked by urgency. Well, you get to the end of all of this, and you wrestle with this, and by now you should be saying, absolutely, absolutely, but I can't do it. And if you're saying that, you're in a good spot. Because yes, we are commanded to be men of urgency. This passage and this text drives that tone to us. But at the end of the day, this urgency really provokes, by God's grace, hopefully in your heart, dependency. Dependency. See, in the text with this word, it's translated more in the active form, be strong. But honestly, in the Greek text, this form is not active. This word is passive. This word is better translated, and it changes so much in the right direction. Be strengthened. Doesn't that change things? Be strengthened. There's two things I want to point out from this, and Paul was uh, hacking up this section pretty good, so I don't, need to, I don't need to spend too much time here, but it bears repeating. Be strengthened. First thing that, that as you start to wrestle with this imperative, be strong, and you realize, wait, it's passive, be strengthened, you learn really quickly that this strength does not come from me. It does not well up from within you. You can't pull your bootstraps up and be the strong man. You've got nothing in the game, men. Matter of fact, I think it was John Newton that said, the only thing I bring, the only thing I bring to salvation is the sin that drives the need for it. That's it. That's all we bring. Man, I'm going to tell you point blank. Your default mode, your default mode is self-strength. My default mode is self-strength. When you start strolling instead of striving, when you kick it in neutral, which is what we all want to do, that's that default mode, like on our computers, right? And that thing pops up, that annoying screen. It's like, we want to go back to default mode. I don't even know what default mode is, but I don't want to go back there. But in our hearts, that's it. Our default mode is self-strength. Here, here, 
feeding off of what Dr. Shirley said, right? Babes. I've got four kids, two of them kind of babes, one in particular still potty training, but all of my kids, two girls, two boys, all of them did the same thing. It was amazing. Two girls, two boys, different from a 16-year-old to a 3-year-old. We had a busy home. They all did the same thing. They all said the same phrase at about the same time in life. Daddy, I do it myself. <laughs> you got it. I do it myself, Dad. And, and, and every time I would, you know, like you, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, you'll do it yourself. Yeah, let's see how that works for you. Right? And there they go, do it themselves. And isn't it interesting? It's born within them. Listen, that still resides in you. That's your default mode. I'll do it myself, Lord. I got this. I got it. And that is our biggest issue. Most of us live, or should I say try to live, our Christian life under that phrase. I do it myself, Lord. I got it. You know what? We just sang a really good song, right? That reality that Christ is all. And I want to make Jesus Christ all in all. And we sang that wonderful, that wonderful song that all I have is Christ. I love to sing that song every time we put it in a set in our church. It's always, it's like the roof wants to come off the place. It's one thing to sing that song, but it's another thing to live in light of the theology of that song. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to live as if Christ is all you have. See, when we start living when Christ is all we have, then that's when we go back to our homes and we don't have those issues with responding to our wives. We don't have the issues of kicking it back into default mode because all we have is Christ. Massive difference. So that brings us to this word dependency. If the, if, the, if the word is in the passive and it means to be strengthened, then I'm immediately confronted by this fact that this strength does not come within me. Therefore, I need to be strengthened from someone else. And the rest of Scripture teaches us that that strengthening comes from God. That that strengthening must come external, not internal. It must be alien from me. It must come from outside in. I must have somebody come and strengthen me. And that is the marvelous, undeserved mercy and grace of God. And that's what we need. And that's what we need to cling to. And that's what we need to be going after. Because what we find in Scripture over and over again is examples, one right after the, another, of people that tried to live in their own strength, tried to do it their way, tried to uh, live the ultimate song of the sinner, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That is the, that is the clearest song of the unregenerate s- sinner. They'll be singing that song in hell more than likely. I did it my way. And this is where it landed me. No, we, we don't do it our way. We have nothing to give other than wretchedness. We need Christ. We need God. We need the, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ and His through His Spirit, by His Word, to strengthen us. That's why when you see the word Used in other verses, it's always translated into passive, and it's always be strengthened. 2 Timothy 2.1, be strengthened. I love it. At the end of Paul's life, what does he say when he's standing on trial and there's no one else there, and there's no one else around him, and he's abandoned, and everyone has left him, and what does he say? But Christ strengthened me. 
You see that reality. 2 Timothy 4.17. Colossians 1, the reality of the, of the apostle ministering. And he says, I labor to the point of exhaustion. I warn everyone. I teach everyone. I seek to bring everyone along in Christ. And I do it to the point of exhaustion. I labor to the point where, where I have no strength. And I do it with what? With the strength that God provides. This is repeated throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 84, 5 talks about over and over again in the Psalms, my strength is in you alone. Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and, and my life may fail me, but God is the strength of what? My heart. Psalm 28, 7 and 8 really gives us a, a helpful understanding of what it means and how we're strengthened. It says, Lord, strengthen my heart as I trust in you. That's how we do it. Really a good illustration of this that, brought, that was brought up even as the brother prayed right before lunch and Pastor Tom mentioned it at the end of that prayer time. The illustration of this is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 where Paul's great declaration about his thorn in the flesh that brought him to weakness and he prayed that it would be removed and at the end of that he comes to that that amazing realization that God's power is perfected in weakness. That's that dependency, men. You want to be strong, men of God? Become weak men. Isn't the way of Christ always counter-cultural? The way up is the way down. The way to be a great leader is by being the greatest slave. The way to be stronger is really to become weaker. Weaker in the sense of, as George said so clearly, dying to self, relinquishing all of your rights, all of your dreams, all of that, and serving only to the Lord. We need to be men who are marked by urgency, but we need, most of all, to be men who are marked by dependency. And this verse and this command, be strong, it's an urgent command, but it's a command that drives us, be strengthened. I've got to be dependent on the Lord. Listen, men, dependency, dependency propels dependability. Dependency propels dependability. Dependency on the Lord is what promotes, propels, and even provokes your dependability in your home, as a father, in your ministry, that's it. You want to be dependable? It's just another way of saying faithful. You want to be more faithful? You want to be a faithful man, which is what it means to be a godly man? You need to be a man marked by utter dependency on the Lord. Not only that, our final word, tenacity. Tenacity. Jumping from this text by now, because I needed three points to balance this out. As I study the text, and those at my church know this, I probably ask way too many questions of the text, but I try to bleed it dry of all that, the truth that's there, knowing I never will, but I'm just never content. I always want more. One of the questions I'm always asking at the end of something like this is how, and Paul was hitting on this, and I was so thankful for it because, again, our minds are going in the right direction, same direction. It's like, all right, I, I, I see my life needs to be marked by gospel urgency. I see my life needs to be marked by God-centered dependency. 
but how do, how do I do that? Or better yet, what does that look like? Help me, pastor. What does that look like? And Paul was really helpful in this. Let me just give you a couple, um, a couple helpful steps, a couple helpful principles, a couple helpful uh, plans for your life to give you some hooks to work on or to work at as you go out of this weekend. Tenacity. George, and this is, I had this in my notes and George was hitting on it, right? Talking about the fact that to be godly men, we need to be men marked by self-denial. Absolutely, amen. We need to be men marked by self-sacrifice. And I really like the idea of the car. One of the elders that's with me, Tom, he reached up, he said, Pastor, that sounds like a good idea. Don't you need another car? <laughs> we'll be talking about that. <laughs> That was good, though. Self-sacrifice, right? That was the point. Self-denial, self-sacrifice. And I'm like, all right, I've got one more on my list. Am I going to scratch the whole thing? And he left me one. Good. Here it is. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, absolutely. And here's how you move forward after that. Self-discipline. Self-discipline. Takes tenacity, man. It's not enough to know that we're called to urgency. It's not enough to know that we are called to dependency, that it's not within you. Then, it, as, as Paul said so, so faithfully in his, throughout his message, it's not enough to know it. You've got to do it. You've got to get tenacious with these truths. You don't play with it. You've got to jump in, and you've got to go after it. So here's three. Here's three ways this tenacity to be a this tenacious spirit to be a godly man, to be strengthened by the Lord. How am I strengthened? How, 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 how is it that God strengthens me in my walk with Him? Well, as Paul said, number one, it's by being a man of the Word. God strengthens first and foremost through His Word. That is the place of utter strength. That is the well, the living well, the water of the living Word that feeds our soul. Psalm 1, right? The picture of the godly man. The, the man we want to be. He does not, he does not uh, walk with sinners or, or sit with the scornful or, or, or sit in the way of the wicked, right? He doesn't do that. What does he do? He meditates. He, he saturates. He feasts upon the law of the Lord. And because he does that, what? His life is like a massive oak tree that provides sustenance, shade, protection, and food for his family. There's much more there, but Paul did so well at that. I'll give you an example of this, a really interesting one. 1 Samuel 30. There's many of this in Scripture, especially in 1 Samuel. It's a great book. Um, in 1 Samuel, at the end there, David's in another one of these predicaments where... Um, the Amalekites are, are continuing to pester him. And as he's off at another army, the Amalekites swoop in and basically take all their wives and children and everyone, right? Now remember, the band of people that, are, that, are, uh, that have sidled up with David are all the uh, criminals, more or less, right? They're all, the, uh, they're all the wanted men. So these guys have short fuses and bad tempers. So they get back to town, and they, and they see they've been ransacked. All their wives and children are gone. And what does the text say? All the men rose up to kill David. He's in a serious, hot mess. 
And I love what the text says. Because remember, in Samuel, at this point, what's going on? What, what is happening within the book? Constant comparison between Saul and, and David. Saul was a man who did it his way. David, we see at this point at least, is a man that's doing it God's way. You know what it says? Right after it says they rose up to kill David, it said, and David strengthened his heart in the Lord. And guess what the next verse says? He calls to the priest and says, bring me the ephod so that I may inquire of the Lord. He goes to the word, says, I want to know what God wants me to do in this situation. It's a man of the word. So must we. Number two, you need to be, number one, you need to grow in the Word. Number two, very specific here, so helpful. Let me just lay it out. Men, you need to grow in the fear of God. This is at the heart of it. A man of God fears God. Period. We need to be men who are growing in the fear of the Lord. Pro- Proverbs 1, 7, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 3, 4, and 7. Trust not in your own devices. Trust not on your own understanding. Lean not on yourself, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. Trust in the Lord. And then it says at the end of verse 7, what? Fear the Lord and turn from evil. Ecclesiastes 12, you know this. The sum of all of life is what? Fear God, and by fearing God, what do you do? Keep His commandments. The heart of a man of God is a man that fears God. My son, Christian, he's nine, he's almost ten, so I've been talking to him a lot about what it means to become a man and getting ready for that, and we're going to make ten a big deal, and he's going to start coming to our men's Bible study because I think it's good for him to do that at ten. It's time to him... He can still play Mario Kart some if he wants, but it's time for him to start putting some of that away a little bit and start coming, being with the men. And I'm looking forward to that, and I've been prepping him for that. And One of the things we do when he starts to uh, lose self-control, I've been trying to raise him up to be a gentleman, and we talk about the four laws of a gentleman, and a law is what you must do. It's a command, and the four laws of a gentleman is always obey God, love your parents, serve others, and protect all people. That's what a gentleman does. Those are laws. They never change. That's what you must do at your age. And then there's the five attitudes of a gentleman. This is how you must live. These are are your attitudes. You must live with respect. You must live with humility. You must live with patience. You must live with perseverance. And you must live with self-control. And when when we're at somebody's house or we're at church or we're somewhere, and this happens quite a bit because he takes after his father, and he starts to lose control. He gets excited. All I have to do is go like this. I look at him and I go, from a distance. And he knows. He knows that I'm not saying, I see you. This is what I'm saying to him. God is watching. God is watching you, son. And when it, and when it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen that he, that he remains controlled and he sins, guess what I always tell him? Christian, you've lost the fear of the Lord. That's why, that's why you're in this predicament. You no longer are thinking about God. You've lost the fear of the Lord, son. See, the fear of the Lord comes, it comes in understanding that God is always watching. You know, when that thing pops up on your screen, you're not the only ones who's who's seeing it. 
God's right there watching the whole thing. Not only that, he's not only watching you, he's going to hold you accountable. You're going to have to give an answer to him. The fear of the Lord comes when you understand the pervasive presence of God. Everywhere, every place, you can't get away from it. He is there. That will begin to instigate the fear of the Lord in your life. Your closet, the place you go to hide and coddle that sin, whatever it is, he's there. And you're going to have to give an account for it. And you have obligations, just like the commands in this text in 1 Corinthians, to be strong. And if you're not leaning on the Lord, you will be held accountable. We need to grow in the fear of the Lord. That reverential awe for who God is. Isaiah 6 is a great passage, really shows us really the, the progressive nature of that growth with Isaiah. I encourage you to meditate there. But we also, finally, we need to grow in the delight of the grace of God. We need to grow in our ability to delight men, to revel and rejoice in God's amazing grace. I don't, I don't think we do that enough as individuals. I, it's, you know, it's, I love coming together and singing, right? We're going, a bunch of us are going to Shepherd's Conference, can't wait to go there and lift our voices together. But what about on your own? What about in the quietness of your heart? No, we need to grow in delighting in the grace of God. This is where, if I had time, we would turn over to 1 Timothy 4, 7, and we would see that great verse in, 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 in that great passage with Timothy, where Paul says, Timothy, you need to remind everyone of these things, i.e. what I've been writing in this letter and the Word of God. You need to remind them. You need to teach them. And Timothy, you need to train yourself to godliness. And that Greek word for training is the word gymnazo, where we get our word gymnasium. And it's, it's this discipline, this tenacity, where you're going after it. You don't play with it. You go after it with all your might and you need to train yourself and you should write in the margin of your bible next to first timothy 4 7 you should write over there second peter 3 18 because how do i train myself to godliness i'm glad you asked you go over to second peter 3 18 and what do you see the answer grow in the grace and the knowledge of the lord christ that's how you train yourself to godliness by growing in the grace of christ what does that mean i'm glad you asked Listen, you start growing in the grace of Christ. You start wrestling with the amazing grace of God. Here you go. Number one, in your election, in your election that God, before the foundation of the world, would choose you to be his child. You know what that does for you? Immediate, un, unquenchable security that you are chosen by God, not because of anything you are or ever will be. He chose you before you were created. It has nothing to do with you. But in that election, you are His. Number two, you grow in the fact of regeneration. He didn't just choose you. He made you alive. He brought life to you, spiritual life, desire, that new heart that we've heard multiple times where He takes out the heart of flesh and He puts in the heart of stone. Number three, you grow in the reality of your justification. The fact that you have been given the righteousness of Christ. That you don't go to God in boldness because of you. You go to God in boldness because you're robed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees the beloved when he sees you. You are justified in him. Number four, you go and you grow in the grace of the knowledge of the Lord Christ by growing in what is reconciliation. Reconciliation brings the peace of God to your life. As you know, you were once an enemy of God and now you're his friend. 
You understand security from election. You understand life from regeneration. You understand this reality of righteousness from justification. You understand the, the blessing of reconciliation and you have peace. What about the next one? You keep growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Christ. And what about adoption? You have been adopted into the family of God and now you have what? Inheritance. You, the weak one, the, the one that has nothing, the one who was once in the dominion of darkness, in the kingdom of Satan, and now he has brought you over into the kingdom of light where you are a son of God. And once you are a son of Satan and all you had over there was death and wickedness and hopelessness, and now you're a son of the king of kings and the riches, his riches are endless and his riches are now your riches. You have inheritance. What a blessing. And then it just keeps going. And you grow in this. Here you go. Propitiation. If you're going to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Christ, you need to understand. You need to revel in propitiation. What is that? Safety. Because the wrath of God once hung over your, your head. The jealousy of God for His glory was coming after you with a vengeance. But God sent His Son to stand before you and God. And now you have safety in Christ. He is the cleft of the rock where you, have, where you are hidden away in safety. That's what propitiation means. That's what it means to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Christ. And you grow in the reality, right, of, of glorification. Propitiation gives you this safety, but glorification gives you hope. And Pastor Tom, what? Clinging to the hope of eternal life. Clinging to the hope that one day this body of flesh will be done with and I'll be glorified. And this journey isn't just try to be good for Jesus. Absolutely not. This journey is keeping my mind's eye on the celestial city and the king of the city while I go through this journey of agony for his glory. There's hope because one day I'll get there and this is, this is all done. And when I get there, it's worth it. He is worthy. He is all glory, all blessing, all privilege right there. So as Paul said, how do I go through this life? Beaten down, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not depressed. How? By fixing my eyes on the eternal. Why I live in the temporary. That's what it means to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Christ. You always have Christ before you in the midst of the crisis around you. 1 Timothy 6.12, I'll end with this. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. That Greek word for fight is one of my favorite in the New Testament. It's the word agon. I once wrote a paper in Bible college, too long of a paper on that one word. It is awesome used multiple times in Scripture. And it, it's where we get the word agony. Men, sooner or later, you come to the realization that this life that we live is an agony. It's an agony because of the sin within us. It's an agony because of the sin around us. It is an agony, but we're called to fight because the king is worthy of the fight. And here's the blessing. The king is glorified with our fighting. What a blessing. It's not worthless. It's not aimless. He is glorified in all of it. Why? Because here, it all comes full circle. He strengthens us in it. Therefore, as Jeremiah says and Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians, we don't boast in our strength. We boast, what? In Him. Because it's only through His strength that we are even getting 
through it. What you've heard this weekend in many ways can be all revolved and pulled together around those three words. We need to be men of urgency. Urgency driven by the gospel, how it's changed our lives and how it needs to change the lives of those around us. We need to be men marked by dependency. Men who are done with self and utterly, completely dependent upon Christ and Christ alone. And we need to be men marked by tenacity. Tenacious in our study and submission to the Word. Tenacious in our growing in the person and character of God so that we rightfully fear Him. And tenacious in our worship and joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah 8.10 says, that the joy of the Lord would what? Be our strength. That we would delight in Him. Let me pray. Father God, thank You for this retreat. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the blessing, most of all, of Jesus Christ that makes all this possible. It was our Lord who was the most urgent. It was our Lord who was the most dependable on the Father and the Spirit, set aside His divine prerogatives. And He comes and He puts on the form of a slave. And He goes to the cross with great tenacity. Oh, Father God, we pray that You would help us. Help us to follow Christ as He was tempted in the wilderness over and over again by the evil one. And he did not depend on his humanity, but he depended upon the Holy Scriptures. Went right back there every time. Oh Lord God, help us to be men of God, following in the footsteps of Christ. Lord, bless us as we go our separate ways. Use us as we go to our homes to bless our wives and our children. That we will spread the legacy of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, both in Bowie and Columbia, Percyville, Delaware, and around the globe, that you may be honored and glorified in all ways and at all times. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.